Uh, last week, Sharice introduced the Psalms to us, and we learned that the overarching theme throughout all of the Psalms is, anybody remember? Praise the Lord. Can you say that with me? Praise the Lord, that's right. And Psalm 8 is the first song of praise that we come to in the Psalms. I've learned many songs of praise through the years, and I think the very first one that I learned was one as a little toddler, and we would get down like this, we would crouch, and we would sing, Allelu, 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 Alleluia, praise ye the Lord, right? Yeah. And another one of my very favorite hymns, and actually when I Googled, Googled it last night, I realized that it's actually one of the all-time most popular hymns, and that is this one that starts out, Beth could sing it much better than me, but, oh Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder, right? And, and it goes on to, you know, considering all the worlds that you've made, that, that your hands have made, and Psalm 8 says the fingers, right? I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, your power throughout the universe displayed, then sings my soul, right? That's what we want to do is when we see that, we want to be able to praise him. Not all people, though, are happy with this idea of praise. C.S. Lewis said that when he was an unbeliever and even as a new believer, he had a problem with this suggestion that God demanded praise. He said, what kind of a God demands that his people tell him how great he is? And then he noticed that we spontaneously praise what we value. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? He said, the psalmist in telling everyone to praise God are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. Lewis went on, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but it completes the enjoyment. And you've heard it said, right, that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. C.S. Lewis said, but these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. So let's pray as we start. Lord, I pray that you would use this time to just awaken our hearts with fresh amazement and adoration and affection for you as we see just the magnitude of your greatness as we dig into Psalm 8. And Lord, I pray that you would use the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart to be a blessing to these ladies, Lord, that you would um, have those words be acceptable in your sight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if we were working our way through the Psalms, every single one of them, you know, step by step, last week we would have also looked at Psalm 3 through 7. And you might have noticed if you read those Psalms that David there in those Psalms, he's lamenting, he's crying out for deliverance, he's crying out for, for grace, he pleads, he says, how long, O Lord, save me, O God. And David runs to God as his shield, and he hopes in the Lord. But finally, at the end of chapter 7, it's as if David comes to a turn in the road, and he climbs out of this valley, and he sees the unexpected 
beauty and pure delight. And then he exclaims, I will give to the Lord the thanks due his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. And this is the first of 37 times that we see this phrase, I will sing praise, that's used in the Psalms. And so following on the heels of Psalm 8, Psalm 9 begins in a similar way. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. So Psalm 8 teaches us how to do that, to sing praise to his name. It begins and ends with identical phrases. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth which sandwiches this psalm in the glorious majesty of God and then our praise of his name. And this theme is the greatness of the Lord and his name in all the earth. Now, if you were an ordinary Israelite back in that time, singing this psalm together with your brothers and sisters, you would consider other Old Testament passages, other scriptures that shed light on your understanding. And we hear echoes of Genesis throughout this psalm, don't we? You might also recall other passages that might have been in David's mind as he wrote this, as he composed this psalm. So verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Yes, Lord, you are our glorious creator. And we know that God revealed himself, right, by name, in the Old Testament, in Genesis alone, he reveals himself as Adonai, Elohim, El Shaddai, which means God Almighty. Now, God's name reflects his person and his work. Do you remember in Exodus when God called Moses at the burning bush? He revealed himself by name and he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you, right? Then in Exodus 6, God spoke to Moses and he said, I am the Lord, that's all caps, L-O-R-D, Yahweh, that's his covenant name. He said here, he said, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Then in Exodus 34, 5, he proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and said this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And you might have also thought about Proverbs 18.10, which says, the name of the Lord is a Strong tower, right? The righteous will run into it and be safe. So we're going to look at the structure, and I gave you a little handout here. Um, everything between verse 1 and verse 9 is going to unpack the greatness and the majesty of the Lord's name in all the earth. But surprisingly, unlike other psalms, which unpack the reasons by telling us all that God has done for us, this psalm encourages us to think about our role, our, um, you know, our position and asking us to consider, right? There's that question right in the middle of the psalm, you know, what are we 
in relation to God's amazing universe? How can praise to the Lord result from pondering our position? And so on your handout, you see that there's two A's, right? Those are the outside of the sandwich. God's majestic name. We see that verse repeated exactly, verse 1 and verse 9. And then if you move in inward, uh, you see God's glorious work and rule in verses 2 and 3, and you see our rule and dominion, dominion described in verses 6 through 8. And then in the center, we have that question which contrasts our smallness and then also our greatness because of what God has, the dignity God has bestowed on us. So what is our purpose? What are we here for? Well, in our weakness, in our insignificance, we are made to praise him, to celebrate his majesty and his glory and his awesomeness, to demonstrate and point others to the greatness of God. We are also to magnify God, and we can do this a couple of different ways. Pastor John Piper is, uh, I've heard him explain this so many times, but in case you haven't heard this, we can magnify God as using like a telescope where we look at something that is just so incredibly huge, we can't even imagine it. We take a huge star, and what, we sing songs about it, right? Twinkle, twinkle, little star. They're, they're humongous, but we use a telescope then to, to show us how big it really is. We don't magnify like a microscope, which takes something like a little speck and puts it under a piece of glass, and it blows it up just so we can see it. That's not what we do with God. God is amazingly huge, and we magnify him by pointing others to him and explaining and exalting who he is. And I think we can see God's majesty wherever we look, right? We can look in the heavens, but when you wake up in the morning and you look in the mirror, you can be amazed that God made you the wonderful ways that he's created your body. Let's go to verse 2. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. As we talked earlier, this is really interesting. It seems kind of random that it was put in this psalm in this place. And what comes to me when I saw the words, you know, enemy and foes and avenger, I thought of Genesis 3, the fall. You know, because of sin, we are now God's foes. We are, we are his enemies. But I also thought about Satan, who is the enemy and the avenger, the serpent. I think we could also look back to Psalms three through seven that we skipped over, and we could see words that David uses where he says, "O oh Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Perhaps David was even thinking as he was looking at the stars in the sky, he might have been thinking about his past. Do you remember when he was just a boy and he faced a huge enemy, a giant, Goliath? And do you remember what he said to Goliath when he faced him? He said, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord our God, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. That day, David learned that the battle was the Lord's and that he would still the enemy and the avenger. And, you know, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, the word praise was used for strength coming out of the mouths here. So I thought about that. I thought about Second Chronicles uh, 20, when God's people um, under King Jehoshaphat were in really deep trouble. They had this horde of enemies that was waiting to attack them, and they, they didn't know what to do. They said this, we do not know what to do, but our 
eyes are on you, right? And then the Lord answered through the prophet, and this is what the prophet said. Do not be afraid, and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. You will not need to fight this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. Do not be afraid, and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. And when he had taken counsel with the people, the king, he appointed those who were to sing and to praise him in holy attire as they went before the army. Okay, so he appointed singers, a choir, to go out ahead of him. And what they order they to say? Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush. So you can see how something that was coming out of their mouths established strength. That was their praise that defeated the enemies there. Let's move on to verses three and four. In July of 1969, the astronauts of Apollo 11 landed on the moon and they left a disk that had messages that included um, things from 73 different countries and also contained the whole text of Psalm 8. And at the end of the mission, as the crew headed back to Earth, Buzz Aldrin read aloud Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Well, God made everything in creation and he declared that it was good, very good. And the fact that the heavens are the work of God's fingers implies his immensity and the relative smallness of even the universe. Yes, men may have walked on the moon and left messages there, left Psalm 8 there, but the more that scientists learn about space through exploration and new technology, we just discover how just unimaginably gigantic our universe is. And Pastor H.B. Charles II said this. He said, the vast universe is divine finger paintings. That's what God is doing with our universe. This is what theologians call the transcendence of God. Against this cosmic backdrop, we are even more small, finite, tinier really than even a microscopic speck in comparison. So David celebrates the majesty of God in the creation above, and then he shifts to what is around him. When we look at creation, the awesomeness of the universe, it's just absolutely stunning that God thinks of me, right? And I think the thing that's hardest to understand is, is not that I'm so small and the universe is so large, but that God loves us. God is mindful of us. God cares for us. And this is what theologians call the eminence of God, the fact that he is near, he is good, and he displays his love for us. Let's go to verses 5 through 8. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. 
Well, made in his image, we represent the king who crowned us and commissioned us to rule over his creation. And here the psalmist is echoing Genesis again. According to Genesis 1 and 2, God not only gave us dignity, he gave us dominion over creation and he gave us this directive to be fruitful and to multiply, that God's glory would reach to the ends of the earth. And so indeed, may it be so. And the psalm ends then the way it began. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now what I'd like to do is I'd like to walk through Psalm 8 again, this time knowing that we have the advantage and the privilege of looking at this psalm with all of scripture at our fingertips, not just with Old Testament eyes. So we need to ask, how did the New Testament authors quote this psalm? How did Psalm 8 point to Jesus? And to realize that whenever a psalm is quoted in the New Testament and applied to Jesus, we consider it a messianic psalm. That's the name for it, a messianic psalm. So let's go back to verse 1 and 2. Let's first look at the word name, the name of the Lord. You read in Matthew this week that when Jesus entered Jerusalem and what we call Palm Sunday, the people praised him, right? They threw their palms out, and what did they, what did they say? Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And if you searched for name of the Lord, you would find verses like Romans 10, 13 that says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Or John 1, 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Or Philippians 2, verses 9 and 10. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So you looked at Matthew 21 this week. This is um, where uh, Jesus actually quotes Psalm 8. The Lord's enemies are stilled, or another way to put that is to put away the enemies by babies and infants, and somehow this is related to what is coming out of their mouths. And as I said earlier, this term can be translated praise. And at first that's a little puzzling, you know, the fact that God chose babies and infants, but as we said earlier, God chooses the weak to shame the strong, the foolish in the world's eyes to shame the wise, and he uses ordinary people who love him and trust him and aren't afraid to speak his praises. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, where he says that that is so that no one can boast, but instead we reflect the praise back to our majestic Lord. So we see the majesty of God and how he delights to use the small, the weak, the helpless things to accomplish his greatest purposes. Now back to creation. Um, back in the garden, God commanded Adam to keep the garden to protect it. It was a beautiful place of worship, of communion with God, and God knew that an enemy would come and question his goodness. Adam was supposed to have dominion and protect this place, but how? Could Adam have chosen differently? Now, this is just a, 
this, this is not like in the Bible, okay? This is just, I'm thinking what if, all right? This is my thoughts. Now, but could he have used words of praise to defeat the enemy? That's what I got to thinking. Could he have done that? Could he have answered the serpent with, oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Lord, I know we were created for your glory, and we magnify your name, and we're going to trust in your word. We're going to obey your law because you're majestic and holy, and if you say we shouldn't eat from that tree, well, we're going to trust you. Could he have defeated the enemy by using praise? We won't know, will we? Because Adam and Eve doubted. They disobeyed God instead. But trusting and praising God is one way to defeat the enemy. And that's what we see in Matthew 21. Jesus had been healing the blind. He had been healing the lame in the temple. And the children began to cry out in praise, Hosanna to the son of David. And we're going to study this more um, as we come to Psalm 118, which is one of the Psalms of Ascent, and that's in Lesson 8. So we're going to study this passage a little bit more. Well, instead of seeing Jesus' compassionate healing as a fulfillment of prophecy, the religious leaders got so angry, they were indignant. They do not recognize Jesus as their Messiah, their rescuer. They ignore the signs but they can't ignore the children and their loud shouts of praise. So they say, don't you hear what they're saying, Jesus? Make them shut up. But Jesus will not. He tells them, yes, I hear them. Yes, they're right. And then he quoted Psalm 8. Have you never read? Oh, that convicted me this week. You know, have you never read? We have the benefit of having th this word here, and we need to know it, right? Yeah, so he says, have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Well, of course, these leaders had read Psalm 8. They probably knew it well. It had been used in the temple for praising God. They probably also knew the rest of the verse, even though Jesus didn't quote it all. He doesn't quote the part where the praise from babies stills God's enemies. The praise from the children and other insignificant folks was the very means that God was using to destroy the enemy. So just like kindling, you know, uh, fuels a forest fire, the praise from these children fed the anger that was just boiling in the hearts of these leaders. And why? Because when Jesus linked the praise of these children with Psalm 8, what he was saying was he was confirming that their praise was right and proper. And they weren't just praising a popular guy who had done miraculous things. They were actually praising God. He was God. And that is what Psalm 8 says. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you, Lord, have established praise for you. Praising Jesus is good and right, for he is the Lord, our Lord. We know that their rage erupted, and that fueled the crucifixion of Jesus. This fulfilled God's promise that he gave in Genesis 3.15, that he would put enmity between us, or between um, you and the woman, he said. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, that is what happened at the crucifixion. Do you see Jesus shining in this psalm? God shows his majesty in vanquishing his enemies with weakness. 
He sent the offspring of a woman, a baby, God incarnate, Jesus, to defeat Satan. He used children to sing his praise and ultimately led to the cross. He used the foolishness and the weakness of the cross to confound the wisdom of the wise and the strength of the strong. So are you feeling weak? Are you feeling insignificant? Well, look to Jesus. Count your blessings, keep counting those blessings, even in the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering, and praise him. Our psalm today also proclaims the majesty of God and his greatness and wisdom. Ephesians 3, 8 through 10 tells us, through the church, that's us, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's what your praise does. That's what your praise does. You make it known to the people around you, but you're also making it known to the rulers in the heavenly places. God's people together, loving Jesus and praising him, points to God's wisdom and it silences his enemies. Let's move on to verse three and four. Let's see how the apostles read this psalm. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? This phrase, son of man, is used in the Old Testament in a general way referring to mankind, but the apostles thought of one man, Jesus Christ. The term son of man is used 86 times in the New Testament, and all except one refer to Jesus alone and not man in general. In Matthew, Jesus uses this term for himself 30 times. So when we read that, we should consider more than the fact that he was just a man created like us. He is that, but we should also have other passages that come to our mind, and one of those is Psalm 8, and one of them is Daniel 7, which says this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that will not be destroyed. Did you catch that? The Son of Man is the one to whom God the Father, the Ancient of Days, will give dominion and glory and a kingdom. And he does that so that all peoples, all nations, should serve him and praise him. So in this passage, Son of Man is really not just an ordinary person. No one is like him. No one is like Jesus. He has all authority. So let's look at Psalm 8.5 now. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. So Adam was created in God's image, crowned with glory and honor, made a little lower than God himself. And God made him king of the earth. Everything in Genesis 1 was to be in subjection to Adam. It was all made to glorify God. But Adam rejected God's word, listened to the serpent, the enemy. He lost that glory, that honor, the dominion and the image of God was tarnished. Psalm 8 doesn't mention the fall of man, although we had hints earlier in verse 2 with the mention of foes, enemy, avenger. But instead, it, it describes man as man was created to be. And as the writer of Hebrews chapter 2, 5 through 8 says, 
it quotes Psalm 8 and it says this, it adds some explanation. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. This means that Psalm 8 is not currently true of mankind. It was true at creation, but not after the fall. Little lower describes us at creation, but this can also be translated, a little while was made lower. And that's what Hebrews says. It goes on to tell us who was made lower in position for a little while. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The author of Hebrews is interpreting Psalm 8 to refer to that original purpose of man and Jesus who fulfills that purpose. So Psalm 8 is not true of all humans, no. Psalm 8, though, is true of Jesus and all who by faith are in him, who are in Jesus. Jesus' crowning with glory is because of his suffering and death. And we know that he didn't die for, for his own sins, but for ours. He took the wrath that we deserved, and he died in our place to bring us back to God, to redeem us, to restore us, to fellowship with him. And now Jesus is crowned with glory and honor. Now, verses 6 through 8 describe the extent of the dominion that the Lord gave to man. He said, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Now, those of you that studied Colossians with us in the fall might have had bells going off when you saw that, that all things. All right, Colossians 1 says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creations, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Right? So now back to Psalm 8, verses 6 through 8, lists the things that man is over, and it echoes Genesis 1. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven, heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. But when you compare that list, did you notice that there's something a little different between those two lists? The last item in verse 8 of Psalm 8 is whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Now, this isn't in the Genesis list, and it could just be a parallel statement, just expanding on it, because poetry does that. You've noticed that the, there's one line, and then the second one will expand on it in some way. It might just expand that idea of the fish in the seas. But in the scripture, the sea is often referred to as something bad or evil. And Revelation 21 tells us that the sea will be no more. And so I wondered, what does this mean? I didn't see this in commentators, so this is just my thoughts here on this, okay? But I went to Isaiah 57, which says, the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. 
And Psalm 74 says, yet God my king is from old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. Well, do you remember 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 26? It's another passage that alludes to Psalm 8, and it says, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is the final enemy, and Jesus triumphed over death. There's nowhere for that sea monster to hide anymore, you know? Um, so that, that's, one, that's one of my thoughts on that. Well, so Jesus, after he has destroyed every rule and every authority and power, doing all that man was called to do in Psalm 8, Jesus will deliver the kingdom to God the Father, and all is going to be restored to proper order. Jesus, the second Adam, has done what the first Adam couldn't. Everything that God asked of man has been accomplished by Jesus. And all eyes will be turned to the Lord our Lord, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The greatness of God and the majesty of God is seen how he uses weakness and insignificance. He used Jesus and his death on the cross to bring about his purpose. I hope and pray that this good news, that God sent Jesus to die in our place, I hope that that is good news for you and that it's landed in a fresh way this morning. And maybe you struggled with that question in your lesson. How would you share the good news of the gospel through this psalm? And it's not an easy question. You do have to go to the New Testament as well, but I'm gonna give you four words that you could use that you could keep in mind to share the gospel in virtually every scripture that you come across, knowing that you have to expand it, of course. But these four, creation, which we see so plain in this psalm, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Okay, I'm gonna go through the four of them. Creation, you could go through this psalm and say, God is our glorious creator, setting everything in place, in heaven and on earth, including humans, and everything he made was so good, very good, and his glory and his majesty is on display. But, number two, fall. Man rebelled against God, disobeyed, and sin entered the world, and we've been at war. We are now his enemies, we are his foes. And there's an avenger, the enemy, Satan. Number three, but God's plan was to redeem us by sending Jesus, his son, as a man who was made lower for a little while, to die in our place, to take our wrath that, that we deserved, but God raised him up and crowned him with glory and honor and all authority and dominion over all things, even death. And then number four, we don't see this clearly now, but one day everything will be restored and his majestic name will truly be honored and praised in all the earth. So creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Psalm 8 is a song of praise that points us to Jesus. I encourage you to share that with someone this week, that he is the Lord with the majestic name that is above every name, that he is the baby that came and defeated our enemy, Satan. He is the second Adam that, that came and put everything under his feet. And Jesus didn't just under, undo Adam's sin. He makes us like him. Let's close in prayer. Oh Lord, your name is above all names. You are majestic, you are worthy of all of our praise. You are creator of all things. You came to save us as a baby 
and then you gave our life. You are our rescuer, you are our reconciler. Lord, may we praise you and love you as we see just the magnitude of your greatness. And I pray that you would cause us to grow in our love for you, cause us to grow in our praise of you. And truly, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen.